friends, Romans, and countrymen, and any others. Well, I hope you had yourselves a good feed. The pub is usually really pretty glorious that way. They have hamburgers that simply cannot be beat. They are, unfortunately, a little slow with the service, but that is because it is a very popular place, and especially on weekends, people are queued up for 45 minutes trying to get in there. But you are now successful. You have eaten dinner at the pub. You have now tasted one of the great accomplishments of life. Now, you might be wondering what the other eating establishments in Gettysburg are like. I mean, if you start at the pub, can things go anywhere but up? And the answer is, uh, no. <laughs> up, no. Different, yes. Now, of course, if you want to go down, there are a number of places that are, shall we say, kind of automatically suspect just from their name. Places like General Pickett's Buffet. <laughs> I think I would give that a wide berth if I were you. You know that's And then, and then there there are there are some other places of um, let's call it a different kind of distinction. Uh, one of which, of course, is just down the block here, the Lincoln Diner. I was recommending this to Lucas. If you have a weakness for old diners and diner food. 24-hour breakfast, coffee that will make the hair on certain people grow again. <laughs> then the Lincoln Diner is for you. And given its proximity, this means that if any of you hear the midnight hour chiming and feel the gnawings of hunger, or perhaps that desire for a nocturnal coffee, then all you have to do is walk right down the corner and the Lincoln Diner will serve you in that manner which has been made so famous at American Truck Stop after American Truck Stop. <laughs> it's definitely a blue-collar, working-class kind of place. It has a smoking section, which is the best section in the diner. <laughs> the rare places it is like that. And uh, in general, it doesn't really care who you are, or what you are, or what you do. Uh, you just come in, you pay your money, you take your choice. So the Lincoln Dunn, one of the great features of life in Gettysburg. In Gettysburg, people tend to be either partisans of the Dobbin House or of the Lincoln Diner. That's the way the class distinction tends to work out. There's no Outback Steakhouse. There is now a TGI Fridays, but that's outside of town at the outlet mall. So you do have to make a little bit of a trek to get there, and since you have all been coming in a bus and don't have your cars with you, it's a long walk. Uh, so you're not likely to get there because, in fact, TGI Fridays it really is not worth a long walk like that. <laughs> you've been in one of them, you've been in them all. So that's some of the eating places. There is, a, there is another historic restaurant in town, the Farnsworth House. Uh, which is in a building which was here at the time of the battle, and it, too, has a distinctive cuisine uh, in that you can actually get game dishes of various sorts there. And it's, uh, it's a very good place. It has a wonderful bookstore attached to it. I would gather that some of you have a certain weakness in nature when it comes to bookstores. 
Well, they have attached to their restaurant, they have a wonderful Civil War bookstore. It has some secondhand material, but it is just excellent on current in-print titles, and you can probably find the most detailed volumes on the most detailed details of the Civil War. If you had, if you had ever been plagued with a devouring curiosity as to how many buttons were worn on the cuff of the 217th Connecticut, you can probably find a book on the subject at the Farnsworth House. So uh, there, are, there are still many things for you all to see in Gettysburg, and I, I am sort of happy to be your, your maitre d' in uh, pointing some of these out to you, and they will no doubt be the food for many adventures over the next 48 hours. I should say a word also about my own home institution, not that I'm really obligated to, they don't pay me for it, but nevertheless I will anyhow, and that is Gettysburg College. Gettysburg College was here at the time of the Battle of Gettysburg. In fact, it was founded in 1832 as a Lutheran institution, and at the time of the battle was actually known as Pennsylvania College. Its main building, Pennsylvania Hall, the white building with the round cupola on top, uh, was here at the time of the battle. It was used as a hospital during the battle for both Union and Confederate soldiers. The classes were dismissed before the battle began. On the first day's fighting, as the fighting escalated that morning, the instructors decided that the students were simply too distracted by all the noise and told them to leave. Right. You see, it's always the students' fault, isn't it? Uh, we have at Gettysburg a Civil War era studies program. It is a minor and can be attached to any regular major program, majoring in political science and majoring in history and so on and so forth. Uh, for our undergraduate students, we have over 50 students in the Civil War era studies minor. And we offer a rotation of interdisciplinary courses that begin with the basic Civil War survey and which conclude in the senior year with an upper division reading seminar on the cutting edge in interpretations of the Civil War era. We emphasize that it is the Civil War era. We do, I think, more than justice to the military history of the war, to the drums and bugles, but we're also talking about the era. So we do the politics, the culture, the people, the economics of the Civil War. And we have a dandy time of it, probably more fun than is legal. <laughs> Attached to that, we also have a student-run Civil War club. We even have a student reenactor unit. And it, too, has its confrontation between the Farbs and the Thread Nazis. <laughs> it does, however, render, render us the distinction of being the only program on the campus that is armed. <laughs> the provost... The provost said to me that one of the most peculiar purchases he ever had to pledge himself to was the purchase of a gun safe for the rifles used by the reenactment unit. It's not the usual thing that a provost puts up change for, a gun safe. I thought that was just delicious. But um, these are the kinds of things we do at Gettysburg College. It's, the, it's a unique program in its own right. There's nothing quite like it anywhere in the country. So if you have aspiring juniors and seniors who are in the college market or who are being pursued by colleges and have a whole milk crate full of college catalogs and big bags of college garbage at home, which they probably do, um, it, it would certainly receive no rebuke from me 
If you put a good word in for Gettysburg College and its Civil War era studies program, they may want to major in architecture, they may want to major in Russian, but they can come to Gettysburg and do that and still minor in Civil War era studies and be very happy campers indeed. So that is my, my word of advertisement, that is my handbill for the evening about our program here at Gettysburg College. And as I say, if you have a student or students, rising juniors or seniors, who are uh, interested in thinking about college, and I'm sure that out there you've got at least one person who is a Civil War nut, right? Yeah, admit it. It's okay. It's all right. You're with friends. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, my name is Bill W., and I am a Civil War nut. <laughs> But as I said, strange things happen here in Gettysburg. People who find themselves ostracized, marginalized, <laughs> oppressed by the dominant culture because they love the Civil War, can come here and it is an asylum. <laughs> I mean a refuge, not an asylum. <laughs> so if you have such, and I know you do, you must, Statistically speaking, you probably have more than one. Um, I, I certainly would not object if you would direct their attention, Gettysburg words, and we would be only happy to take charge of them and do good things for them. Well, Lincoln and Douglas. Old Abe and the Little Giant finally meet and cross swords. Well, you know, strictly speaking, Lincoln and Douglas did not meet for the first time in 1858. They'd known each other for years. They met when Lincoln first went out to the legislature and Douglas first went out to the legislature in Illinois. They'd both been elected and they were young, rising, aspiring, and ambitious men. Both came to the state capitol then at Vandalia, Illinois. But from that point on, you could scarcely have tracked the careers of two more different and distinct individuals. Abraham Lincoln was a Whig and a devoted partisan of Henry Clay. In that autobiographical extra, extract that you read, the letter to, Joseph, to, to uh, Jesse Fell, you will remember that Lincoln said, always a Whig in politics. <coughs> that was putting it mildly. Lincoln's second law partner, Stephen Logan, said of Lincoln that he never knew a man who was stiffer in his Whig doctrines than Abraham Lincoln. He was a consistent, a loyal Whig, whereas Stephen A. Douglas. Stephen A. Douglas was a consistent and loyal admirer of Andrew Jackson and a partisan of the Democratic Party in Illinois. They also differed in their career tracks, or at least their success. Douglas was elected to the legislature. He had barely warmed his seat before he was rewarded with political office in Illinois, in the land office. He was then made, at the age of 28, a state judge on the state Supreme Court. He was then elected to Congress, and after serving in Congress to represent Illinois, he then was elected senator. And as senator, he rocketed to national prominence. 
Whereas Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln served out three terms in the Illinois State Legislature, served out one comparatively fruitless term in the House of Representatives, and went back to Illinois to lick his wounds. He was reasonably successful as a lawyer, but that was not the success Lincoln wanted. The success Lincoln wanted, really, was political success. That he did not have, and Stephen A. Douglas had in spades, and it galled Lincoln no end to think that this man who embraced principles that Lincoln detested had had everything handed to him on a silver platter. Why? I mean, we look back at this and we say, my goodness, if we had been alive in 1858 or earlier in Illinois, we would have tripped over our shoelaces to have rewarded Abraham Lincoln and given him the places that Stephen A. Douglas occupied. It forgets the fact, how, though, that the state of Illinois, from its organization as a territory and its admission as a state in 1819, was a democratic stronghold. I had said earlier today that Illinois, in the, in the southern half of the state, was mostly settled by migrants from the, the upper south. Those migrants were by and large Democrat, Democrat. And since it was southern Illinois, which was settled first, they gave a cast to Illinois politics that was decidedly pro-Jacksonian and pro-democratic. The middle counties of the state were Whig in their political orientation, but they were a minority. The northern counties did not experience really important settlement until the late 1840s and early 1850s. So through much of his political life, Abraham Lincoln was identified with and allied with the minority political party in his own home state. And for that reason, no political plums came his way. No political cherries to pick off the tree. All of that instead fell into the hands of Stephen Arnold Douglas. What happened in 1858? Strictly speaking, it was an election year. That and nothing more. But in real terms, there were many other things happening in 1858. First of all, Abraham Lincoln had experienced his political reawakening over the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 and had once again thrust himself back onto the political stage, first campaigning for old Whig candidates and then when the Whig party went pop, pop, fizz in 1855 and 1856, he transferred his political identity, like many other anti-slavery Whigs, to the new infant Republican Party. There was, in fact, such a backlash against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, even among loyal Democrats in Illinois, that Lincoln thought that he might have a chance for election to the Senate. <coughs> election to the Senate in 1854 and 1855 is not what we might think of it today. Not until 1912 did Americans directly elect their senators. In the 1850s, senators were elected by the state legislatures. That means that when people voted in their state elections, 
They were voting indirectly. They were voting like an electoral college. They were casting votes for state legislators who in turn would cast the votes for whoever would be the United States senators. And that only after the legislature met after the election. So that in 1854, as part of this backlash against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Illinois legislature suddenly acquires a strong component of anti-Nebraska state representatives and state senators. Many of them are Democrats, but who have decided not to run anymore in Douglas's PAC because of the slavery issue. There are a number of anti-Nebraska ex-Whigs who have not quite found their way to the Republican Party yet. And Lincoln looks at that critical mass, and after the election in November of 1854, he announces himself as a candidate for the Senate. And when the state legislature, House and state Senate together, meet at the beginning of 1855, Lincoln is the front runner. Lincoln garners the majority of votes. Well, not quite the majority. And thereby hangs a sad tale. Lincoln was the front runner. Front runner wasn't good enough. He was not able to garner enough votes to give him the majority he needed. And in order to stave off a resurgent Douglasite Democrat candidate, Lincoln agrees to step back, give up his votes, and allow an anti-Nebraska Democrat named Lyman Trumbull to be elected senator instead. This is stiff medicine for Lincoln. This looked like his big shot, and here he had to give it up and give it to Lyman Trumbull, a Democrat from downstate Illinois. Lincoln was gracious enough about it, but it just ground hard inside him. It also grieved his fellow former Whigs who saw him humiliated and who were determined that Lincoln needed to be rewarded for his effort in 1855. The next senatorial election would happen with the election of 1858, the legislative elections of that year. That would be when the next senatorial seat would be open. And in this case, it would be the senatorial seat of Stephen A. Douglas as the senior senator from Illinois. Now, normally what would happen in a case like this is Stephen A. Douglas, a man of undoubted national prominence, and of course as a man of national prominence in the Senate, a man quite capable of bringing home the bacon to his constituents in Illinois, Stephen A. Douglas would, would assume that his reelection by the state legislature would be a foregone conclusion. There would be state legislative elections in November of 1858, and then come the 3rd of January, 1859, when the new legislature met, he would be elected, re-elected by acclamation. <laughs> Not if Abraham Lincoln could help it. Not if the new Republican Party could help it. So comes the year 1858, and Lincoln is ready to do something very different. He will not wait for the state legislative elections. The Republican Party leadership will not wait for the state legislative elections in November. In June of 1858, 
A statewide Republican convention is called in Springfield, Illinois. It adopts a platform and it nominates Abraham Lincoln as the one and only candidate of the Republican Party for the United States Senate. Now, mind you, strictly speaking, Lincoln is not running because nobody ran for the Senate in the November elections. Nevertheless, the Republican Party nominates him. This is the first time in American political history that for a senatorial election, a party has put a candidate out front months in advance of the election. And this is sending a message to people, one of many messages, as we'll see in a minute, but it is sending a message to people. They know from June 16th all the way through to Election Day on November 2nd that whatever vote they cast for a state legislator is also going to be a vote for Abraham Lincoln or against Abraham Lincoln. Stephen A. Douglas sees the same thing. And Stephen A. Douglas realizes he's in for the fight of his life. John W. Forney, a Philadelphia Democratic newspaper editor, asked Douglas what he thought about his chances. And Forney was confident that Douglas would be a shoe-in for re-election. Oh, no, said Douglas. Not, not facing Lincoln. He is the best stump speaker in the West. If I win, it'll be a hard fight the whole way. Those jokes and stories he tells, said Douglas, I can deal with his arguments. I can deal with his politics, but those jokes and stories, every last one of them, are like a whack on my back. <laughs> Douglas was one of the few people who did not underestimate Abraham Lincoln. That was one thing that people did frequently. They looked at Lincoln and they saw this tall, six feet four, ill-proportioned, bony, awkward man who looked, as one observer said, like a rough, intelligent farmer. And they concluded that here was a man with no formal education to speak of. This is a man who draws out his sentences in a Kentucky twang and a high, squeaky tenor voice. And they would conclude that this man was of no substance whatsoever. He's just a county lawyer. <laughs> Leonard Sweat, who was one of Lincoln's legal associates, said, any man who took Abraham Lincoln for a simple man would soon wake up with his back in a ditch. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There was something deceptive about Lincoln. I don't mean intentionally deceptive. Deceptive in the sense that what you saw was not what you got. What you saw, what you saw looked like a down-home prairie Socrates. What you got was something much more sharp-edged. Lincoln had a wonderful habit in a courtroom. He would stand up in the courtroom. He would begin discussing the case. He would go down the list of points, eight or nine of these points, that were at issue in the case, and he would start giving them away. Oh, we concede point number one to opposing counsel. Yeah, there's a measure of truth in what opposing counsel says in point number two. And he'd go on like that, and opposing counsel over there at the other table would start to swell up like a bullfrog in summer, start to get very full of himself, start to think, well, this case is won already. Here's Lincoln already agreeing that I'm right on all these points. And just at the moment when he got to the, to the maximum point of swelling up, Lincoln would get to the eighth point or the ninth point, and they would turn around and hang the whole case on that and wrap it right around the opposing counsel's neck. And he wouldn't even see it coming. 
Lincoln was so good at stating a case that it was often said that all that Lincoln had to do was give his opening, opening summary and the case was half won. Lincoln would get up, give the summary, and the judge would say, all right, Brother Lincoln, we'll now hear from the other side. That was all that needed to be done. It was not that he was some kind of lawyerly wizard. It was that he had a gift for concise, clear statement. He had a gift for persuasion. It was very low-key. It was easy to mistake as being homey. But in fact, as Sweat said, anyone who mistook that for simplicity would soon wake up with his back in a ditch. Stephen A. Douglas understood that, and he came into this contest very much aware of what kind of an opponent Abraham Lincoln was going to be. And Stephen A. Douglas was prepared to fight this campaign with every weapon in his arsenal, legitimate or not. The Lincoln-Douglas race is a very complicated race because, in fact, there were really four contests going on in this 1858 campaign for the Senate. First of all, there was Lincoln running for the Senate and Douglas running for the Senate. All right, that takes care of two of the most obvious parts of this four-way campaign. But there was a third struggle going on here, too. And that was Lincoln versus the East Coast Republican establishment. You would think that especially for a new party, which had yet to establish itself firmly, which was still very much a coalition party, a coalition of anti-slavery interests who probably did not agree on very much except that they agreed in being opposed to slavery, you would think that they would throw every possible resource they could behind Abraham Lincoln so that they would have a better chance of defeating the champion of popular sovereignty, Stephen A. Douglas. But that was not what happened. And the reason it's not what happened is tied up with the Dred Scott decision and the Lecompton Constitution in Kansas. First of all, the Dred Scott decision. I said that the Dred Scott decision had two parts. One part denied the Dred Scott could be a citizen and therefore had no standing to bring his suit in a federal court. The other, more gratuitous part of the decision was that Congress had no authority to make any decisions about <coughs> slavery in the territories. Now, that certainly cut against Republicans who were agitating for Congress to forbid the extension of slavery into the territories. But it also cut against Stephen A. Douglas's doctrine of popular sovereignty because not only did the Supreme Court declare that Congress could not forbid slavery in the territories, it declared that no one else could either. So even if a territorial legislature elected on the basis of popular sovereignty wanted to ban slavery, the Dred Scott decision declared that it could not. The Dred Scott decision was in fact everything that southern slaveholders had wanted all the way back to the Compromise of 1850 when southern extremists demanded that the solution to the Mexican session be simply that southerners be allowed a free ticket to take any slaves they wanted into any of the territories they wanted. And that seemed to leave Stephen A. Douglas without a branch to hang on to. For one thing, 
It turned the southern slaveholders against him. Southern slaveholders who'd been willing to play along with popular sovereignty because they thought it gave them a little daylight to take the ball forward. But now the Supreme Court had done even better. According to the Dred Scott decision, they didn't need to fool around with popular sovereignty. They could go straight to the territories. They could pass, go, and collect $200. Stephen A. Douglas was suddenly a man without a slogan, a man without a platform. What did popular sovereignty mean after Dred Scott? But Stephen A. Douglas was nothing if not resourceful. He bounced back with the argument that, in fact, the only way that people could prevent slavery from going into the territories after Dred Scott was popular sovereignty in this fashion. Douglas argued that slavery goes into a particular place. First of all, if it's not forbidden, and that's what the Dred Scott decision did. But slavery requires something else before it can go into a particular place. That something else is supporting legislation, what Douglas called police legislation, in the form of slave codes, punishments concerning runaways, and so on and so forth like that. Slavery doesn't just walk into a vacuum and say, here it is. Slavery requires not only permission to enter, it also requires local legislation to fence it around, give it stability, give it permanence. And, Douglas said, all right, let's accept Dred Scott's dictum. Let's accept that the territorial legislature cannot forbid slavery from coming in. However, indirectly, that same territorial legislature can prevent slavery from coming anywhere near it by refusing to pass police legislation supporting it. And suddenly, popular sovereignty reigns. Douglas has performed a political miracle. He has changed water into wine. <laughs> now, not only is popular sovereignty the great banner of Stephen A. Douglas, Douglas can argue that it is the only weapon left after Dred Scott which will permit territories to make up their own minds about slavery. Now, this does two things. One is it cooks his goose with the southern slaveholders. This is it. He's, he's, as, he's as dead as a chicken in the pot. But the other thing it does is this. It sets him up against his own party and the leader of his own party. Because the leader of his party, James Buchanan, two days after the Dred Scott decision is handed down in his inaugural address, affirms that he is going to put his chips on the Dred Scott decision. And more than that, a year after that, James Buchanan is pushing hard to have the Lecompton pro-slavery legislature and the constitution that that pro-slavery legislature writes at Lecompton recognized as the official state constitution of Kansas and therefore Kansas to be admitted as a slave state. And Buchanan makes it clear as the head of his party and therefore the head of the majority party in Congress, line up toe the line and support this particular administration proposal. And if people don't, well, there will be consequences. If you do not demonstrate that you are a faithful, loyal Democrat, there will be, con there will be consequences. You want to get reelected? Suddenly you won't have any access to national party coffers. 
You want to become important to your people and support your own people in your state? No patronage jobs will be made available to them. And mind you, in the 1850s, there's no such thing as civil service or civil service exams. Every executive branch job in the country is a discretionary appointment. It's the spoil system with a vengeance. And patronage is the lifeblood of politics in the 1850s. Because patronage was how you rewarded loyal followers. People worked for you in the election. They took time out of their lives. They sacrificed time from their pursuits and their jobs and their professions. How did you reward them for that? Well, you rewarded them with a nice plum patronage job. This in an age when the public sector actually paid better than the private sector. So if you were an aspiring party worker, a Democrat in Illinois, and you would work for Stephen A. Douglas, you would stay loyal to Douglas. Why? Because in exchange for your faithful support of Douglas and the Democratic Party, you would be rewarded with patronage. You would, if you were the editor of a newspaper, you would receive printing contracts, lucrative printing contracts. Or, if you were a faithful party worker, you would be appointed to a post office job. In Chicago, the post office was presided over by a postmaster and 101 clerks. And I'll tell you something, those 101 clerks weren't just stamping stamps. The assumption was that at election time, those clerks would fan out over the countryside and they would become the party workforce. And they were. So you could be rewarded with a nice postmastership in some little town that didn't put much demand on your time. You'd earn a, a real cool $1,000 a year, this in a, at a time when $300 a year was the average working man's annual salary. You'd have a nice plum position and plenty of time, all indoor work and no heavy lifting. And that would be your life. And that you would get as a reward for faithful service to the party. But if Stephen A. Douglas is no longer the anointed man of the Democratic Party, that patronage isn't going to come your way. If you remain loyal to Douglas, off goes your head. And someone who is loyal to President Buchanan gets appointed in your place. And suddenly Stephen A. Douglas finds the ground shifting out from under his own feet. In fact, Douglas is up for re-election, suddenly bereft of the party support that he had previously enjoyed. And his followers back in Illinois now uneasily have to decide. Are they going to stay loyal to Douglas? Or are they going to convert and go over to Buchanan? Prudence might dictate that you suddenly experience an outburst of loyalty for President Buchanan. On the other hand, what happens if Douglas wins re-election? Buchanan's star sinks. Ay, 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 ay. Which horse do you put your money on? So Douglas, this is the third race that is taking place. Douglas has to fight off the hostility of his own administration. And that hostility comes to, its, comes to the fore, not only in terms of patronage, but also the Buchananite loyalists in Illinois actually meet in convention and nominate their own candidate for the Senate. So we don't just have Republican and Democrat. We've got Republican and Democrat and Democrat. Oh, we got trouble right down in River City. And that, most of that trouble is flying in the face of Stephen A. Douglas. But there's a fourth contest going on here, 
And this is what I meant by Abraham Lincoln having trouble with the East Coast establishment. East Coast Republicans looked at this fracas between Stephen A. Douglas on the one hand and James Buchanan on the other. Here is Buchanan trumpeting the joys of the Lecompton Constitution, agitating for the admission of Kansas as a slave state, and putting himself in the back pocket of southern slaveholders in his own party. They look at that, and then they look at Stephen A. Douglas, fearlessly standing up against Buchanan, defying the powers that be in his own party, repudiating the Lecompton Constitution, <coughs> denying that this bogus legislature is a legitimate exercise of popular sovereignty. And suddenly East Coast Republicans say, oh, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. Maybe, in fact, we should be wooing Stephen Douglas. Maybe we should endorse Stephen Douglas. After all, look at the, look at the possibilities. Other Democrats have come over into the Republican Party. Look at Lyman Trumbull. Other famous Democrats have done this. What would it take to get Douglas to join the Republican Party? And what a catch. Here's the Barry Bonds of American politics. Wouldn't it be great to have him in your lineup? So, what are East Coast Republicans going to do? They're going to do their best to encourage Stephen. Come on. Come, come over to our side. Run with our party. Can you imagine a Republican ticket running for the presidency in 1860 with Stephen Douglas at the head? It would be a shoe-in. It would be a shoe-in. Yeah, that's how they were thinking in the East Coast. But then there's Abe Lincoln in Illinois and the Illinois Republicans, and they are totally flummoxed prospect of these East Coast Republicans dallying with Stephen A. Douglas. Don't they realize who Douglas is? Don't they realize what he stands for? Don't they realize that he is a liar? A conniver? Totally untrustworthy? Utterly antagonistic to Whig and Republican principles? Don't the people in the East Coast realize what a snake in the grass he is? Lincoln complains in December of 1857. Why? It's Horace Greeley in the New York Tribune eulogizing and glorifying Stephen Douglas. If they mean to back Douglas, it would be a big favor if they would tell us now so that we could pack our bags and go someplace else. Because they obviously think they know better about Illinois politics than us, Illinois Republicans here on the ground. But it does mean that Lincoln's got a problem. It means he will run, he will be nominated by the Illinois Republican Party, but he will not be enthusiastically backed by the Eastern Republican establishment, who is not sure that they want to see the great Stephen A. Douglas taken down, especially if there's a chance that the great Stephen A. Douglas will convert to the Republican Party. And this means that not only will Lincoln not have the support of the East Coast establishment, but it also means that every other Republican leader in the Midwest will think twice before endorsing Lincoln. They'll think twice before endorsing Lincoln or doing anything to promote Lincoln's candidacy because what if that angers the East Coast establishment? What if, in fact, they're right and Douglas does become a Republican and gets elected president and he can remember that two years ago these people were leagued against him? 
then they start to worry about their patronage jobs, don't they? Maybe it will be easier for many Republicans simply to stand back, you know, watch events, see how things play out, not get too far ahead. And that's not good for Lincoln, because Lincoln will need every bit of help he can. He is running against a famous candidate with a deeply entrenched patronage network in Illinois. He needs every ally he can find, and the East Coast establishment is really going to deprive him of that. Yeah? With that well established, why does Douglas agree to seven debates? Why take it on? It's, it's folly. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lincoln is nominated in June. Douglas comes home after the adjournment of Congress, adjournment of the Senate, in July. Gives his opening campaign speech on July 9th from the balcony of the Tremont House in Chicago. And Lincoln follows in the evening afterwards with a response. Now, from that point on, it's whoosh, the campaign in full force straight till November 2nd, 1858. For the first month of this campaign, for the first month of this campaign, Douglas appears to be running away with it. For one thing, Douglas still has that patronage network that is still loyal to him in Illinois. For instance, the Illinois Central Railroad provides Douglas with a traveling train, fully appointed palace car, a flatbed car with a small brass cannon and two gunners to fire it off every time Douglas came into a town. <laughs> so everybody would know that the great Stephen A. Douglas, the little giant, was about to arrive and give a speech. Why did the Illinois Central do this? because the Illinois Central was banking on Stephen A. Douglas using his influence in the state legislature to repeal the 7% gross receipts tax on the Illinois Central Railroad. One hand washes the other in politics, doesn't it? Oh yeah. And when Lincoln got out, and when, I'm sorry, when Douglas got out on the hustings, going from town to town, place to place, what was the message he preached? It wasn't I'm a very nice, reasonable person. I'm the advocate of popular sovereignty. I'm running against this very honorable man, A. Lincoln. Oh, no, no. The message that Douglas promoted was purest demagoguery. And it went like this. Abe Lincoln is party to a conspiracy with Lyman Trumbull. Years ago, Trumbull and Lincoln agreed that Trumbull would abolitionize the Democratic Party in Illinois, and Lincoln would abolitionize the Whig Party in Illinois. Trumbull has succeeded so far, and now Lincoln is trying to follow him. But Illinois won't take that bait, because Illinois does not believe, and you will pardon my use of the term, in nigger equality. And that is what Lincoln believes in. Lincoln is a closet abolitionist. Lincoln will promote Negro equality, social and political equality, not just natural rights. Social, political equality. Douglas prophesies, elect Lincoln, and in a very short period of time, you will have black people on juries. You will have black people bearing witness legally in courts against white people. You will have black officials. You will have black men marrying your daughters. 
Oh, he was low. He appealed to the basest instincts of what is still in the middle of the 19th century a white supremacist society. So, these are the terms on which Douglas proposes to wage combat. He will appeal to the basest political instincts of the Illinois electorate. And what does Lincoln do? Underfunded, undersupported, Lincoln follows Douglas from place to place after that little brass cannon and tries to offer rebuttal speeches. And it does not go well. It does not go well. Finally, the leadership of the Republican State Central Committee says that he has to do something about it, and their solution is to propose, pin Douglas in place, challenge him to one-on-one -on -one debates. Just don't follow him. Draw up even with him. Debate him in every place that he speaks. And this then becomes the appeal that is made to Douglas. Douglas at first waves it away. Why does he need to debate Lincoln? He doesn't. But for reasons that I have to confess are still not clear to me. It's almost as though Stephen A. Douglas could not bear the thought of a challenge. He could not see the glove thrown down without picking it up. He turns and agrees not to debate Lincoln at every point in the state, but at seven selected points. And those seven points are selected on the basis of being the county seats, the principal county seats, in each of the seven congressional districts that Lincoln and Douglas have not yet spoken in. There are nine congressional districts, nine U.S. congressional districts in Illinois. They've already spoken in two of them. They will select places, and it's Douglas who does the selecting, in the remaining seven, and there they will debate. And they debate in Ottawa, Illinois. They debate in Freeport, Illinois. They debate in Jonesboro. Charleston, Illinois, and then in Alton, Galesburg, and Quincy. And these debates take them right through until the 15th of October, within a whisker of the election itself. The debates have become the principal feature of the 1858 campaign, almost to the exclusion of everything else that was going on. I think that's something of a mistake, because the debates, important as they are, are by no means the whole story. There were multiple elections going on. First of all, there were elections for United States Congress in those nine districts. Then there were the elections for the state Senate. Then there were the elections for the state, state House. And there were elections for state treasurer and state superintendent of public education. And then there were various county offices. You know how it is at election time. You go into the booth, there's this ticket of people all the way down to the coroner, the assistant coroner, the associate coroner, the associate assistant prothonotary. People walk in, they vote for a prothonotary. They don't even know what a prothonotary is, and there's no voting for them. But the same thing was happening in Illinois. There were multiple layers of election going on. And not only do Lincoln and Douglas debate, but they also speak. They continue to speak at 50 other sites scattered across the state at different times. Not only are they speaking, but other people are campaigning. Legislative candidates are campaigning. There are legislative conventions. There are state senate conventions. There are county conventions. There are district conventions. This whole place, the whole state of Illinois is going nuts with politics in the summer and the fall of 1858. But at the end of the day, they all are keyed in one way or another to this great campaign between Lincoln and Douglas. 
And this begins to consume not just the state of Illinois, but the country. One reason it does that is because, for the first time, these debates are taken down by shorthand reporters representing the Chicago Times and the Chicago Press and Tribune. Now then these shorthand accounts are shipped by railroad to Chicago where they appear in the Chicago papers the day afterwards. Sometimes they're cutting this so close that the shorthand reporters will get up to the halfway point in a debate and their notes will be hot-footed over to the train station and half of the phonographic notes, the stenographic notes, will go up to Chicago. And then at the end of the debate, the other half of the stenographic record will be taken to the next train going out of the station. And that will go up there so that by the time that second portion has reached Chicago, the first portion is already there and the stenographic notes have been translated out into regular text and is being set in print. Not only that, but the Associated Press, a new creation of the 1850s, is able to pick up these debates on the telegraph and by means of the wire service the next day readers in New York can read about the Lincoln and Douglas debates. Now mainly they start out doing this because they want to read about what Douglas says. But by the midpoint of the campaign people are reading this not just for Douglas but for what Lincoln is saying to Douglas. And by November and election day the whole country has had its attention turned to this contest in Illinois between Stephen A. Douglas and this otherwise unknown Illinois politician named A. Lincoln. Lincoln loses. He doesn't lose directly because he wasn't running directly. He loses because the state legislative elections elected a majority to the legislature of Democrats. And when the legislature met in January of 1859, a strict party line vote elected Douglas, or re-elected Douglas, to the Senate. Lincoln knew that the story was over in November. He could add the figures up. He knew. So in a sense, this is a story about defeat. But it's also a story that has a lot of shades and complexity to it. Not only was Douglas a demagogue, but in fact, he launches an October surprise of his own. And that is a letter from Henry Clay's great successor among the Whigs, John J. Crittenden, a letter endorsing Stephen A. Douglas. It's one of the biggest political stabs in the back of the 19th century. Because that letter persuades many old line Whigs who were wavering between Lincoln and Douglas to go with Douglas. That's one of the really critical causes of the loss. But another critical cause is Douglas's shameless, persistent flagging of the race issue. The appeal to the basis of racial prejudices. What I have put before you this evening is a little exercise for all of you to participate in. I want you to be part of the 1858 election. You have two documents in front of you. One is a single sheet on both sides that shows you the Illinois State and House, uh, Senate and House districts in the 1858 election. You can see from these maps that there were 58 House districts 
in Illinois, and 25 Senate districts. Now, if you look at this map, there's a certain color coding that explains some things. <coughs> Lincoln, it's important to understand, Lincoln, right up until Election Day, believed he was going to win. He believed it might be a squeaker, but he believed he was going to defeat Douglas. Why? The answer is that Lincoln could read an electoral map just as well as anyone. And the kind of map you're looking at is probably very similar to the way Lincoln and the state central, Republican State Central Committee worked things out. If you look at the color coding, what you will find is this. In the north of the state, the green hatching, the districts that are represented by that green hatching, this is the state house districts, Yellow? Well, maybe it comes up yellow in the coloring. All right. Blame the copy machine. Uh, to me, it's green. Maybe it came out yellow for you. But all right. Anyway, the northern counties with that yellowish green, <laughs> that yellowish green hatching, these are counties which gave majority votes in 1856 to the Republican presidential candidate, John Charles Fremont. Now, Fremont, of course, was ultimately unsuccessful, but he made quite a surprising run for it being the first candidate for the presidency the Republican Party ever put up. So those counties with the yellowish-green hatching are the counties that gave majorities to Fremont in the 1856 election. That's a good, sizable chunk of Illinois. And Lincoln had good reason for believing that in his race in 1858, those voters who had voted for Fremont would vote for him as a Republican, or at least vote for the legislators who were Republicans and therefore committed to him. You might say that those with the yellowish-green hatching are the safe Republican districts. Lincoln could count on them giving their, their Republican legislators their votes. Now, if you look at the, the white, the unmarked legislative districts, the state house districts, those are the districts which gave their majorities to James Buchanan, the Democratic presidential candidate in 1856. These were the districts that were probably going to vote for Douglas. They would vote for Douglas even if Douglas had died two years before. These were the rock-ribbed Democratic districts. And note, of course, they're in the south of the state. But then there are two variables. There are some which are marked simply with ordinary pen hatching, and then there are some which are marked with blue hatching. The counties marked by blue hatching were carried in the 1856 presidential election by a third-party candidate, Millard Fillmore, who was running as the last hurrah of the old Whig party. <coughs> now, if Lincoln runs in 1858, and in 1858 the Whig party is dead, there will be no Whig candidate to speak of. Lincoln, as an old ex-Whig, should logically be able to expect that those old Whigs who no longer have a Fillmore, no longer have a Whig candidate to vote for, will vote for him before they vote for Stephen A. Douglas or any other Democrat. So mark those blue counties as real possibilities. Places where Lincoln is in a good position to pick up people who simply won't vote for a Democrat under any circumstances whatsoever. They may not love Republicans, but they dislike Democrats even more. 
And then there's that last category with the pen hatching. These are districts, these are counties, where Buchanan won the majority of the votes, or at least he won the plurality of the votes. In fact, the majority was split between Fremont and Fillmore. In those counties, it would be logical for Lincoln to assume that those voters who voted for Fremont and for Fillmore would unite in 1858 and vote for him. After all, they had refused to vote Democratic, but they had split their votes, and that was why Buchanan won the district or won the county. But if there is no division to split the votes, if Lincoln is the only non-Democratic candidate, then why won't those voters give their majority to Lincoln, and Lincoln will pick up those districts, and Lincoln will go before the state legislature to be elected to the Senate. I've worked out some of the numbers, and if you look at the numbers in the little balloon in the upper right-hand corner, Lincoln can pretty definitely count on electing 29 Republican state legislators who will vote for him. He is very likely to get 48 of the state representatives if we add in the Fillmore districts and the divided Fillmore-Fremont districts. That's 48 in the state house. He only needs 51. He only needs 51 to win. So he can be close. And that's just the state house. Turn over the, turn over the page and you get the state senate. The story is very much the same. Yellowish-green counties, strong for Fremont. They can pretty well count that those counties and those districts will elect Republican state senators who will also vote for Lincoln. Then, of course, you see that there are blue counties which gave their votes for Buchanan and the, uh, for, for Fillmore, and it should be assumed that rather than vote for a Democrat, they will cast votes for Republican state senators. And then, of course, there are the counties without any marking whatsoever, which aren't going to vote for a Republican no matter what happens, even if there's a tsunami in the Mississippi River. <laughs> What's the total here? Well, if you look again at the balloon on the right-hand side of the paper, Lincoln will definitely get eight, eight state senators voting for it, partly because Republicans will be elected from certain state senate districts, also because there are a number of holdovers in the Senate. Unlike the State House, the Illinois State Senate elected senators for four-year terms, but staggered the elections all across the state. So there are going to be a number of holdovers who are not up for re-election. Now, if he can win those eight, he's in like Flynn. If you add in the possibility of Fillmore State Senate districts going for Lincoln, then you've got 13 state senators. You've got Lincoln winning a good, healthy victory. What this means is he feels that not only has he have a good chance, but he, there's even a margin of error that he can tolerate. And taking all this together, the Illinois Senate seat may be ripe for the picking. Why doesn't it happen? Why doesn't it happen? Well, one reason is, of course, Douglas. He plays the race issue. And he also launches the October Surprise, aimed at keeping Fillmore voters from voting for Lincoln. With the endorsement from John J. Crittenden, 
that could send Whig voters who had supported Fillmore instead fleeing over to Douglas. But how close was it really? That was a question I asked myself when I went out to Springfield, Illinois, because it turned out, and this bothered me a great deal, I nowhere could find records of what the exact district and county voting patterns were. There were aggregate numbers. Approximately 125,000 Illinois voters voted for Republican candidates. 121,000 voters voted for Democratic candidates. But the apportionment meant that that didn't equal into a majority for Lincoln. Apart from those aggregate numbers, I could nowhere find, even in the New York Tribune almanacs, where the breakout was and whether Lincoln was justified in thinking that this political map was going to send him to the Senate. I went to Springfield expecting to find it, but it had been nowhere published there, not even in the official journals of the Illinois House of Representatives and State Senate. So at long last, I betook myself to the dusty state archives of the Secretary of State in Illinois and to the original voting ledgers. And there, at long last, yours truly, found the district by district, county by county voting records for all of the House and state, state House and State Senate legislative districts. And yours truly also, with a great deal of tedium and the application of what one professor once described to me as Sitzfleisch. <laughs> I think you can translate. <laughs> Keyed it all in to an Excel program, and you have the results before you. You are among the first people since 1858 to be looking at the exact vote returns on Lincoln and Douglas in 1858. Now, lest you think that I have provided you with this merely for the amusement of watching you go ooh and ah, think again. Because <laughs> we got some work to do. And we're going to do it this way. What I would like you to do, I'm going to divide you up into groups based on the tables you're sitting at. I would like you to sharpen your pencils and especially sharpen percentages. We all know how to do percentages, right? Yeah, okay. If you don't know how to do percentages, there's bound to be some math teachers around here. All right, yeah, if you've got a calculator, that will help too. Um, what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to divide you up into groups, and what I'm going to do is to assign you House and Senate districts from these voting, voting tallies. And I'm going to ask some questions. And the most important questions are going to concern this. Were there any places where this race was a squeaker? Were there any of those borderline districts that Lincoln hoped to win? Were there any of those districts where Lincoln, in fact, came so close that it almost ached? Or was this election, after the race baiting, after the Crittenden October surprise, was this election, did it turn out to be a blowout for Stephen A. Douglas after all? Now, one thing to note about the sheets. Let me explain this. What you see in these sheets, first of all, in the first left-hand column is the district number. First district, second, third, and so on and so forth. And that tallies to what you see on the maps. The second column from the left is the county that was part of that district. First district is made up of Alexander, Pulaski, and Union counties in the very southern tip of Illinois, what was known then as Egypt. It's 
it's called Egypt because the city at the very tip, southern tip of Illinois, was Cairo. Cairo. Please do not make the mistake of calling it Cairo. Cairo is in the other Egypt. All right. So if you go to Illinois, make sure pronounce it Cairo. In fact, when you find other places there, like Athens, don't pronounce it Athens. It's Athens. All right. What you're hearing, incidentally, what you're hearing is a reflection of the southern origins of downstate Illinois. All right. Alexander, Pulaski, Union counties, they were all part of the first district. In the first district, there were two candidates. William A. Hacker, running as a Democrat, a Douglas Democrat, and John S. Hunsaker, running as a Republican. Hacker, I identify by the green. That tells you he is a Douglas Democrat. In that third column from the left is always the winner. So you'll see green for a long time and then suddenly you'll start seeing red. Red candidates are Republicans. So when you see a color, the color is coding you to who the winner was in that district, whether they were Democratic or Republican. So what you see in that third column is the winner. In the fourth column, is the loser, usually. Now I say usually because there are some districts which elected two representatives. Look at the 8th district. It elected two representatives, both of them Democrats. That means that the next two columns are the two Republicans who ran and lost. Occasionally, you will see a third column that third column is always a Buchanan Democrat candidate. However, the Buchanan Democrats were not able to muster enough electoral steam to put up a candidate in every district. In fact, if you look at the numbers, you can see why. Some of them would have been better off if they just stayed home. The Buchanan Democrats, to make a long story short, got butchered in this election. So what you want to devote your attention to is to the first two candidate columns, either the third column or the fourth column, or if a district elects multiple representatives, you know, just multiply that out, you've got two and two instead of one and one. Now is that clear to everybody? Did I do that right? Okay? Now what I want you to do is this. We're going to divide up on the basis of tables, the tables that we're sitting at, and what I would like, I'm going to start here and you're going to be table one. It is Election Central, 1858. We are, yeah, this is like CNN. We are now getting the vote tallies in from district by district across the state of Illinois for Abraham Lincoln and Stephen A. Douglas. And with all precincts reported, we're now prepared to find out what the breakout of the percentages looks like. Let's begin with Table 1 and its report on House Districts 1 through 5. What are our percentages in House Districts 1 through 5? District 1, Democrats 65, Republicans 34, Scattering, scattering less than one. In other words, these were the people that did write-ins for Mickey Mouse. 
You've always got a few of them. Yeah, it didn't mean John scattering was running. Okay? Nor did it mean candidates were scattering over the landscape. All right. District 2, Democrats 85.6, Republicans 14, others. Uh, District 3, this was uh, Democrats 51, Republicans 27. And height was 12. Um, district 4, 99.9. Yeah, whoever, whoever was the scattering. Fifth district, James Hampton, Democrat, was 42. Bradley was 36. Um, Vance was 22%. All right. Do you want to say just not yet? Not that. If we look at what we've heard from, we have heard from the five southernmost counties of Illinois. It's a cluster of five districts at the very south of the state. Now, Lucas, lend me your expertise as a political science person. <laughs> what counts as a close election in terms of percentages, and what counts as a blowout? Okay, so if it's, I'm just thumbnailing that. Right. So if we're within four, let's say four percentage points, all right, we'll take that as the benchmark. Any election within four percentage points is a contested, a strongly contested election. And let's say anything where the differential is one to two points is a squeaker. Is that, is that fair to say? Okay. Do we have any squeakers in no. districts one through five? No. No. We're looking at blowout numbers. All right. We're looking at even in the fifth district, where the Buchanan Democrat candidate Thomas Vance actually posted a pretty strong showing. Nevertheless, that gap of forty-two percent to thirty-six percent, you know, that that just, that just pushes it way off the edge. All right. So the first five districts, we're talking no question about Stephen A. Douglas, hands down winner. On the other hand, that's not a surprise. No one expected the result to be really much different than that. All right, table two. You are going to give us the results on House Districts 6, 7, 11, and 12. All right, 6, 7, 11, and 12. These are borderline districts. They have, based on their 1856 performance, these are districts which might go for Lincoln. All right, so what's the story on these districts? Six districts was 48%, and the Republicans, 52. Um, so that one was close. Mm -hmm. And uh, seven was 66 to 34. So 34% for Samuel Henry. Uh -huh. Noah Gagman should stay home. Yeah, we didn't really even count that. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, 8th district. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not doing 8, we're doing 11th. I'm sorry. 11th district. In the 11th district? 
Oh, 27 for Marine. Okay, and? Um, and then the 12th? 73%. The other shoe drops. Okay. And then in the 12th district, you have a district that is entitled to two representatives. So what are the percentages here? I'm not sure how they're entitled to districts, but if you match them to candidate against candidate, Shield beats Chandler 53%, 47%, and Garrett beats Novel um, 56-44, and the other two numbers. Right. Okay. Atlas Four did not hold up the sky. <laughs> All right. So this is in the 12th district. Lincoln finally gets a Republican uh, set of Republican legislators. Look at where the 12th district is located, St. Clair County, which gave its votes to Fremont in the 1856 election. It is, by the way, it is the home district of Lyman Trumbull, the other Illinois senator who by this point is a Republican and who comes to Illinois to campaign for, for Lincoln. So, all right, again, not a surprise. But does he take the 6th, the 7th, and the 11th, which he should have hoped to take? No. No. And the only one that is really in play uh, among those districts, uh, tell me again which one one of those is very close. It's this, it, only the 6th district is in any way close. All right. Gets a little depressing at this point, but remember, we're still dealing with Southern Illinois. We have not heard from Central Illinois or Northern Illinois yet. Right? So, we're broadcasting the numbers as they come in. All right, let's go to Table 3. You have Districts 13 and 14. These were districts which went strongly for Fillmore. All right? How do they perform on the 2nd of November, 1858? Oh, I see what you did. You actually did it as an aggregate. Well, yeah, here's one of the problems is the way people voted. Uh, they vote, they didn't, there was no election booth. All right. What they did was they, most frequently, they either had a printed party ticket, and if there was somebody on there they didn't want to vote for, they took a pair of scissors and cut their name off. Or they cut a ticket out of the newspaper and handed that in to the, at the election window. So, the ways of calculating this can be a little tricky when you've got multiple candidates. All right? But do we look like we've got anything even remotely close there? No. Probably not. Probably not. All right, so the 13th and the 14th districts, which were hopeful for Lincoln, don't go for Lincoln. He needed those districts. He did not get them. But the story's not over yet. All right, let's go to Table 4. Table 4, you have districts 8 through 10 and 15 through 17. What is the story there? Uh, 8th district is 42% for Anderson, 37% for Melvin. 10% for Andrews, um, and 
8% for Johnson, 3% for Sneed, and less than 1% for Johnson. But, yeah, if you were to put those two together, it would be 80% for the Right. Right. So the so so this this is going to go to the Democrats no matter what. All right. All right. Eighth district. Now let's go to the ninth district. What's the story? Uh, sixty-four percent for the Democrats. Okay. Percent. Go up. Yeah, real low out there. <laughs> Boy, this is getting depressing, isn't it? All right. We're going. We're going to look at the tenth district now. Another BO, 67%. Uh, I'm sorry, well, we, we missed that to the shop. BO, it's new election. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that personal slur at my high Anyway, yes, give us the numbers again. 67% for the Democrats and 33% for the Republicans. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is really starting to look. Very, very unpleasant, but on the other hand, the 10th district, eh, still in Southern Illinois. All right, let's move up a little bit. What about 15, 16, and 17? Okay, 15th district, um, 64% for the Democrats and 36% for the Republicans. Mm -hmm. Still trying to get used to the idea. I'm telling you, you're going to hear it on CPA next. <laughs> My prediction, I make it now. Okay. <laughs> One day. All right, tell us about the 16th district. 16th district, 6% for Stevenson, 39% for Kitchell. How much for Stevenson? Sixty. Six zero. Yes. Got it. And for Kitchell? Um, thirty nine. Very fine. Scattering gets his votes there. Bounds across the place. You bet. Yeah, he just keeps showing up all over the place. All right. Finally, seventeenth district. Seventeenth district. McLean, fifty nine percent. Tells. What? What, what, 45, what? 41. 41, thank you. I was going to say, that's a statistical impossibility, my dear, but anything can happen in Illinois. I mean, look what happens. I know that. Look what happens in Chicago at every election. Okay. We're, we're still looking. Not only, not only are Democrats winning the seats, but they're just winning, winning, winning the seats. I mean, it's hardly fair. But again, 17th district, where is this located? We are still in the hardcore southern part of Illinois, all right, where they do the blow. All right, let's see who's next. <laughs> Go out and vote and do the blow. All right. You like that, huh? All right, table five. 18, 19, and 20. 18, Democrat 56. Republican 44. 19. Democrat 67. Republican 33. Scattering insignificant. 20. Republican, or excuse me, Democrat 59. Republican 41. All right, 18th, 19th, and 20th districts. 
Okay, it's bad, but it doesn't surprise us. Okay? But we're starting to run out of districts that Lincoln can afford to lose. So where are we going to go next? We're going to go to table six. And table six is going to tell us about 24, 25, and 36, and 37. And now we are moving into those districts which Lincoln has to pull votes from. Okay? So what happens? Tell us. 24 is uh, 51-49. 51-41, and it's a Republican victory. 49. 51-49. Sorry about my accent. It's that, it's that Kentucky accent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're quite welcome. <laughs> 25th is the same thing, 51-49. 51-49. And 30. Right, let's go to the 36th district. Um, 30, 25th district is a 51-49 split. All right, let's move to the 36th district. 36 is 52%, 45%, 3%. And 37 district is a 60-40. 64 and? 60-40. 60-40. I'm so glad you got a translator back. <laughs> Five, and then a pair of 44. Okay. 
Alright, table eight. Okay, 34, 55, 45. Okay, 35. 34th district. 55 percent. 45 percent. 35th district, 51 percent, 49 percent. Now get to the 39th. Yeah. 52 percent. Right. 48 percent. Okay. 40th district, 54 percent, 45 percent, and 1 percent. That's the 40th district. We did it, we split it up, so 26% for more, 25% for brace, 20, 41st, 3% Jameson, 24% Ingersoll. Okay. In the 42nd district, McCall 49%, Cook 47%, Janney 4%. Okay. Okay. Now, let's move to the ninth table. And you're going to give us districts 22, 28 through 33. And we already heard from 41, that was my mistake, giving it to too many people. Well, it's typical Illinois voting. Anyway, <laughs> District 22. District 22. Rush has 66.45%. <coughs> Hamilton 33.55%. Okay, somehow I did that up the same way. I was wondering why I had so many tables here. I was wondering why. 28. 28 to 33, please. All right. Shaw has 28.25%. Do you want just the Democrats to vote for Republicans or do you want everybody to break down? Oh, let's let everybody have a breakdown. All right. <laughs> 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 I mean, Curly, yeah. Curly? 27.3. 27. Oh. 27. Does Mo have any votes in there? <laughs> 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 John Brown's brother? <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm sorry, what? Brown. Brown, yes. 36? 26. 26. Right. Okay, we're in the 29th district. Metcalf has 26.31. Bain, 26.28. Dallas, 23.14. Bailey, 23.12. Quinn 01 for Grover and Grimes. <laughs> Better know of one and lost or something like that. Love and lost. Okay. 31st, Roosevelt with 53.49, Rockwell with 45.5, Frazier .01. 32nd, Barry 52.51, Hugh 47.36, Martin .001. Thirty-third, Graham twenty-six point zero nine, 
Thank you. All right. Not yet. We're coming to that. We're almost there. Almost there. All right. Table ten. Table ten. Okay. 48 district. 48 district. Democrats have 16. <laughs> Democrats, no. Republicans are red. Republicans are red. <laughs> just, just think red state, blue state. All right.
sure how you calculated that. Well, you do you, you add the, the, the first two and then the second, or how do you do that? Just tell us whichever number you came up with. Um, if you just took the votes first and second, they were almost equal, 56 and almost 56. Okay. And 44 and 44. Right. Okay, 44th district. 78 and 22. <laughs> and 45th district. I think that was 51, 57. I'm not sure. I can't quite read it. And 49. I did. That's a liar. Oh, this inspires confidence. Now you know how we got Florida to Everything I wanted to All right, 43, 43. All right, we got to 45. Let's jump to 55th district. Tell us what the numbers are. All right, yeah, 55 was 55 was 67 and 29, and 56 was 25, 25, 24, 23, and divided all of them. Okay. How come I didn't get the 57th district on here? We didn't have that one. I know. Somehow I managed to miss the 57. All right, well, we can do that for homework tomorrow. Anyway, do we have any squeaker races here? What are the squeaker races? Let's go, let's go through it. Let's go through it very quickly. And let's see which are the squeaker races. Any squeaks in the first district? No. Second? Third? Fourth? Definitely not the fourth. Fifth? Sixth? All right, that's competitive. It's not a squeaker, but it's competitive. <coughs> Seventh district? No. Eighth district? No. Ninth district? No. All right. Tenth district? No. Eleventh? No. Twelfth? No, not really. Not really. Remember, we were saying four, four percentage points. Spread of four percentage points is competitive. Two percentage points, we can call it a squeaker. 13th district? No. 14th district? No. 15th district? No. 16th district? No. 17th? No. 18th? 19th? 20th? 21st? 22nd? 23rd? 24th? Yes, we got a squeaker there. 25th district? Yes. Well, these are not good squeakers for Lincoln. All right, 26th district? No, not really. And the funny thing is, Sangamon County is Lincoln's home county. 27th district? No. 28th district? Well, no, that, that, that depending on how you're doing your numbers there, that could be pretty close. That could be pretty close. No way? All right, I'll take your word for it. 29th district. That's pretty close. All right. 30th district. 30th? No. 31st? No. 32nd? Yes. Who said yes? Shut it down. You know, as you drop the numbers, you have to look more at the numbers and less of the percentages to really get an accurate analysis of it. Seriously, I mean, in, in, in a small in a small oh, district, I know. I know. percentages are, are deceiving. 
Sometimes. Sometimes. On the other hand, they do at least give us some indication of when they were really close. 43rd district. Is that close? Really? No. 44th district? 45th. Yes. Yeah, that, that, some of that is pretty close. 46th? 46th is no. 47th? No. 48th? Is there anything after that that's even remotely close? No. Boy, this was not good for Lincoln. All right. Let's do a quick one on the State Senate. That's more straightforward. Let's go back to table. Let's go back. Woo! Almost done. Everybody hold on. It's been a long night in Election Central. District, or rather, table number 12. Table number 12. You're going to give us Senate District number 9. Okay? Ninth District. Is it incumbent in there? Hold over. Is it incumbent holding over? No problem there. Table 11, you've got 7th and 8th districts. One's a holdover. What's George Bester's figures? And the Democrat? 47. That is a squeaker, and you can see why George Bester gets elected. It's because the Buchanan Democrat drew just enough votes over to hand it to the Just what Lincoln was hoping would happen in a number of places. Unfortunately, not enough places. All right. Let's go to table 10. You've got Senate Districts 1 and 2. District 1 is a holdover. What's the numbers in District 2? Okay. All right. Let's move on to table number 9. You have District 5. Table 9. Let's see. Table 9. Wake up. Adam, 72.35. Right. Right? No risk there. I know, it was a good joke. All right. Table number eight, you have districts three and four. What's the scoop? 89%, 11%. Right. Fourth district, 57%, 42%. Oh, okay. Very nice, very nice, very nice. All right. Table number seven, you have 10, 15, and 17. 10's a holdover. 15's a holdover. 15's a holdover. 17's a holdover. Oh, you had an easy night of it. No child left behind. All right. All right. Table number five. You had districts 11 through 13. Democrats 51.5. 51.5? Against 46.2. Right. Stripe district 3.5. Right? Against uh, 45. And the uh, district, uh, 58.6 against uh, 40. Okay. 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 That's good. That's good. Let's look at table number four. You have districts 16 and 18. One of them is a holdover, but what's the story in the 18? Are you table four? We are. Yeah, we were. What you do? <laughs> we have 14, 21, and 22. No, you no. did. Yes, yes, we did. Yes, yes, yes. I, I will show you my notes. Sure. Yeah. Right here. All right, all right. We're not going to fight about it. Exactly. 
that motion. All in favor, rise. Right. All right. All right. All right.